I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk again. Big, big political developments in the UK again over the last 24 hours with the loss of two seats for the Tories uh, and the resignation of the party chairman. So that debacle, that story continues to ramble on. Global equity funds this week saw their biggest outflows in nine weeks because investors are now starting to flee into cash because they are becoming increasingly worried about recession in the United States and elsewhere. I think the other thing that really strikes me in the current environment is everything you read, everything you listen to um, in an economics context and indeed in a general news context is just talking about recession, recession, recession. And it would appear that the economics community is sort of falling over itself at this point and indeed are others to try and forecast the imminent recession. And it's funny, I had a conversation with a Sunday newspaper journalist earlier in the week who was asking me some specific questions for a survey about when I expected the Irish economy to go into recession. And uh, I refused to answer that question because um, I think anybody that puts their head up and predicts exactly if and when a recession is going to happen or not happen um, is setting themselves up because as we've discussed many times in this podcast, forecasting is a mug's game anyway. But it's amazing that journalists are trying to fill up new stories now with predictions of exactly when a recession is going to happen. And of course, um, if I went on and said, I think it's going to happen on the 3rd of September, um, and if that didn't turn out to be the case, well, that would come back to haunt me for the next 15 years again. So um, it's a strange world out there. So how do you view what's happening in the global economy and, and with the whole 
conversation around recession. The economics profession has many jokes told about it. We've probably told many of them ourselves. Some would say that we are jokes. Some indeed have said that. But one of the criticisms that's levelled at economists throughout many decades is that they never forecast a recession. If you go back and read through the forecasting and analytical literature, they always seem to miss the impending recession. That's why financial market types don't rely on economic forecasts for their steers as to where things are going. And analysts look at financial market indicators of, of where we are in the business cycle. It's much more common in financial markets for analysts and investors to use the signals taken from various financial markets, particularly the all-important bond market and in what's called the shape of the yield curve. And there's all sorts of jargon about yield curves sloping upwards, being inverted and all the rest of it. But there are other indicators as well. Not perfect, any of them, but taken together, they're usually better than economic forecasts. I think it's very understandable why economists are now forecasting a recession. The news is bad. We've talked endlessly on this podcast about how inflation is taking off in different ways everywhere. And what needs to happen as a result of that is, of course, what we're seeing, which is higher interest rates. But it's also the effect that inflation itself has on people's spending power. Because what's happened in the commodity space, particularly in terms of energy, is that the consumers of energy are essentially handing over much, much bigger slices of their income to the owners of energy. And that's other countries, or in some cases, companies, or both. And so the loss of income that everybody suffers who is not an energy producer is perhaps ironically, ultimately disinflationary, deflationary, or contractionary, and that you just don't have enough money to spend on other things. So the spending on other things falls, and you get a downturn in economic activity, perhaps even a recession. And I think economists are focused very much on that. They're also looking at all of the confidence indicators that are coming out. We had one today, which was the UK consumer confidence indicator that showed it was at its all-time low. It's a series that began, I think, half a century ago, and it's never been lower. Now, there are lots of reasons for that, but primarily is the loss of income. I suspect the political environment, which you mentioned at the top of the show, is also a, a, a smaller part of the lack of consumer confidence in the UK. But those very low consumer confidence readings are echoed elsewhere around the world, particularly in Europe. But I don't think even the United States is immune. We've got uh, the fact that we're all wondering whether on, in the UK, we're wondering whether we're all going to be deported ultimately to Rwanda, seeing the random way in which people seem to be selected for the flights that don't go, don't go out. That's me being a little bit facetious, of course. But the more serious thing that must be affecting everybody's confidence is the situation in Ukraine, which we've talked about a lot. It's clearly still very, very serious, disappearing from the headlines a bit, which is, which is in, both interesting and, for me, concerning. Economists are looking at all of this and saying, yep, yeah, a recession is inevitable when you think about the loss of income, higher interest rates, taking a bite out of mortgage and other debt repayments. It's got to be a big downturn on the way. But I also think there's another factor involved in economists' forecasts, and that's that point I made earlier, that economists historically have never been able to forecast the next recession. They always say uh, growth will be 1%, 2 3% next year, then boom, it comes in at minus 2 and they get laughed at, criticised for never actually seeing that recession coming. So I think they've been primed, the profession, the, the forecasting profession has been primed 
to try and almost, I think, over-anticipate the next one. And I wonder just how big a factor that is this time around. Uh, I, I would say I have no idea whether there's going to be a recession or not. There's all sorts of talk about whether the Fed can engineer the famous soft landing. I doubt very much whether the Federal Reserve knows whether it can or not. But we need to be very careful that we don't talk ourselves into a recession because expectations and confidence are very important factors in determining economic activity. It is interesting to see that the futures market, I mentioned the way in which analysts and investors look at various financial markets for a steer as to where things are going. The money markets in the United States think that the recession is now so likely that by the second half of 2023, which isn't that far away, just over a year away, we should act, we could actually be looking at interest rate cuts in the United States, which I think is looking around far too many corners all at once and is the market in danger of disappearing up its own exhaust pipe. But that's the, the, the very strange situation that I think all financial markets are in uh, at the moment. Uh, the, the, the future is very unknown, very unknowable in, in my view. And the Federal Reserve has changed its tack recently to say that it's going to be just be driven by the data. And one of the things that strikes me is that the data is going to surprise. And I think that one of the surprises over the next year is actually going to be how fast inflation falls. But that's a personal view, verging on a forecast. So I'll ask you, what do you think? I look at a, a lot of indicators around the place. You know, some you've mentioned, uh, if you look at where commodity prices are at the moment, um, all commodities, it's energy, it's food, it's industrial metals, uh, timber, everything else. The prices are up dramatically in the last 12 months. Uh, you look at short term interest rates now on the way up and central banks clearly have made the decision that they're going to do whatever it takes to slow down economic activity, at least to get inflation and inflation expectations back under control. We have long-term bond yields rising in a pretty dramatic fashion, albeit from very low levels, but still uh, the increase is pretty significant. Uh, we have consumer spending power being eroded in a pretty dramatic fashion by the increased costs of living. Mind you, I would say that Dublin Airport this weekend is forecast to experience its busy weekend, busiest weekend since before COVID. And also I observe traffic flows around me here in Dublin and uh, traffic is absolutely chaotic now most of the time. So clearly the price of fuel is not impacting on people's driving habits. But, but you know, having said that, there's a lot of indicators out there which would lead one to believe that there will be a significant slowdown in economic activity over the coming months globally. And of course, a lot will depend on how far central bankers believe they have to go on the interest rate front to kill off those inflation expectations. Um, I even hear today uh, the ECOFIN, the European Finance Minister's meeting, um, expressing all sorts of concerns about the danger of inflation becoming embedded in the system and inflation expectations starting to escalate in more dramatic fashion. So if you combine all of those things, as I say, you would really expect a significant slowdown in economic activity and superimpose on top of that the wealth destruction that's being caused at the moment by the very poor equity market performance. But indeed, anybody who's been invest invested in bonds would also have suffered significantly. And of course, 
the poor devils who have invested in cryptocurrency would also have lost a lot of money in recent months. So everything would appear to be against economic activity and economic growth at the moment. And um, I suppose the only real question is, what sort of recession is it going to be? Is it going to be mild, short-lived, or is it going to be something more significant? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, a lot will obviously depend on how the Ukraine situation unfolds over the coming months or indeed years. Uh, there's a question mark over um, even if the Ukraine war was to end in the morning, would energy prices come back down immediately? Uh, probably not. So I think I think we're seen to be stuck with higher energy and indeed higher food prices for the foreseeable future. So you you could get pretty bleak about the whole outlook. There there is no doubt about that. Um, on a on a base effect, even if oil prices remained at current elevated levels, on a base year and year effect by the second half of the year, you would start to see a significant deceleration in the year-on-year price comparison. Um, I think the same base effect in food will be pushed further down the road because it's only very recently that food price inflation has started to take off. But it is certainly conceivable that this time next year, you know, we are looking at inflation rates back around their um, pre-COVID levels. So that 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 would be extraordinary. But uh, we don't know. And there's, there's not a lot of precedent to go on at the moment. It's just a very strange, very volatile, very uncertain world out there, I think. Yeah, I think that anybody needs to be very careful about expressing a lot of certainty. But let me paint a different picture to you, Jim. Before COVID, one of the things, perhaps the key thing in, in many economists' mind, was disinflation or deflationary forces. You might remember that it was, you know, some central banks had great difficulty in actually meeting their 2% inflation target, not because it overshot, but because they continuously undershot. It's only very recently that the ECB has actually managed to achieve its 2% target when it went straight through it going up, of course. I asked the question of myself as much as you, Jim, where have all those deflationary, disinflationary forces gone? Have they just simply been masked by the series of shocks that we've had, which has been COVID, which has been Ukraine? And, the, and in, in, certainly the policy response to those shocks has been very reflationary, if you like, particularly in the United States. And is it not possible that once all of that washes through the system, and of course that requires the Ukraine situation to at least stabilise and hopefully get a lot better, but once all of that washes through the system, do we not just go back to the world that we had before, which for many, many years, what we were worried about was lack of inflation, not inflation. What has changed so much to have caused a permanent change in the inflationary outlook? Could we be astonished by, say, 2024, a couple of years away, that we're sat at this sort of podcast or writing, scribbling our, our missives as we do, saying, oh, gosh, we've gone back to exactly where we were five years ago, worried about the lack of inflation. I think there's a reasonable chance of that. I, I, I don't see those deflationary forces as having gone away forever. So I, I, one thing I'm confident about is that we're going to be surprised by what happens over the next couple of years. And if you ask me what my, if you like, and this might sound a bit oxymoronic, my favourite candidate for the biggest surprise of all is that in two years time, we'll look back on this period as being truly weird, truly unusual, and clearly for people in Ukraine, truly horrific. But it's then back to where you were and nothing to see here. The world economy right, writes itself. I think that if there is a recession, 
my guess is that there's going to be a mild one, but with one important caveat. That caveat is the behaviour of central banks, because I think that the weakness that is out there for the broader economy is what happens to real estate, both commercial and residential. And I think there are plenty of, and I know you disagree with me on this one, Jim, I think there are plenty of straws in the wind globally to suggest that already for both commercial and residential, things are weakening. Not catastrophically, but certainly the air is coming out of those particular bubbles. And I think it's quite right to ask the question, will central banks now overdo it and cause the next financial and economic problem? I'm reluctant to use the word crisis because it is a much overused word. But will the next problem be in fact central banks overdoing this and trying to squeeze inflation out of the system in such a way that it didn't need to be, because inflation is, I think, going to abate naturally now and kill the economy stone dead, make the recession much worse than it needs to be, make whatever slowdown happens much worse than it needs to be via property. And that, for me, is where the weakness lies. What do you think? If you think about the global forces that had caused deflation and disinflation, you know, a lot of them haven't gone away. We were, there's a number of contributing factors, you know, the structural issue is definitely around demographics. And Japan was the extreme example of this, but um, rapidly aging populations, obviously, as populations get older, you know, spending power diminishes and savings behavior increases. So there was that structural force at a global level, there was the whole growth of globalization over the last two or three decades, the world becoming economically significantly smaller uh, with intense competition on product markets particularly, but indeed also on service markets with the emergence of low-cost countries uh, like China, India. And then, of course, that cycle moves on and now you're looking at countries like Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, been major suppliers of very cheap goods and services into the, well, goods particularly, into the global economy, all putting downward pressure. We've had the growth of competition at the retail level, and that's mainly, it's not bricks and mortar competition, really. It's the advent of the internet and online shopping and the competition that creates, and I guess, the contribution that companies like Amazon make, but also indeed, if you look at the contribution that retailers, the so-called discounters like Aldi and Lidl, the impact they've had on retail consumer markets around the world, not just here in this country. So there's a, a lot of forces out there that were, and of course, sorry, one I also forgot was the uh, diminishing power of trade unions. So there's a lot of forces out there which delivered that deflationary and disinflationary environment that we'd lived with and that central banks really struggled to get a hold of. I think if COVID and Ukraine hadn't happened, central banks would still be struggling to try and generate some price pressure, some inflation in the system. But of course, those two events came along and um, changed the rules of the game from a central banker perspective. But there's uh, how many of those forces will come back into play once we get through this very unusual period we're living in at the moment. There is clearly some question mark over the future of globalization. Although if you look at the flow of global trade, 
that would not suggest that we're yet at least living through deglobalization. Global trade is, to my knowledge, still growing. So that's a sign that globalization is still there with us and that those competitive forces are still at play. We are going to, as consumers around the world, experience significant uh, austerity caused by increased cost of living rather than by what happened in 2007, 2008 and its aftermath fiscal austerity, which are still talking about austerity from a consumer perspective. So that there's a, a lot of those forces have not gone away. And the question is, when will they return and with how much ferocity they will return? But um, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think there is a strong possibility that two years down the road, we will once again be back talking about the challenge from deflation and disinflation um, as phenomena. So it really is an interesting one. And from central bankers' perspective, it really is the big challenge. Clearly, uh, I've repeated many times, clearly central bankers are just taking the view at the moment to throw caution to the wind and go for it to do whatever it takes to try and get inflation under control. Uh, regardless of the economic consequences. By that logic, raising interest rates will ease the blockade of Black Sea ports in Ukraine and grain shipments will therefore resume. If you can get interest rates up enough, all the mines in the Black Sea will magically disappear. And if you raise interest rates enough, you'll get the oil price down to levels that you find more congenial. So you can probably tell that I think that central bank logic is perhaps a little bit lacking here. I'm not quite sure what it is that they are up to. I know, Chris, I, I agree with you. And we, we've, we've had this discussion many times that the inflation problem at the moment, particularly in Europe, a little bit less so in the United States, is not because of excess demand, which is what you use interest rates to impact. It's because of supply side problems. And I agree with you, you know, increasing interest rates is not on its own going to get commodity prices down. It's not going to make food cheaper. It's not going to make oil cheaper. Um, but I suppose you could stretch the logic and say that if you cause enough economic pain using interest rates, that you destroy demand to such an extent, there's excess supply of everything out there and then supply side prices will start to fall. But I think that that is an incredibly stupid that would be an incredibly stupid sort of experiment to carry out. Um, as I say, increasing interest rates to affect or impact a problem that is caused by the supply side rather than excess demand doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But I guarantee you, Chris, after this podcast, one of our listeners will come back once again and say that the European Central Bank should have increased interest rates significantly at this stage, that it's way behind the curve, that it's made a major policy mistake. I just don't buy that. I really don't buy that uh, because the notion that there is excess demand here in Europe um, just does not. It defies logic as far as I can see. Yeah, saying that the European Central Bank should have raised interest rates aggressively by now, I think is woefully incorrect put it that way. I could be extremely rude here about people that say that, but given that we try to be nice to our listeners. That said, Jim, we did have one listener have a go at me this week who said that I was playing the man rather than the ball when I said that the ECB historically has made a balls of it. And that's a quote. I reject that assertion totally. I First of all, ad hominem means that you're actually attacking an individual, not a named individual usually. I think when I have a go at the ECB, I don't think anybody could in the ECB could take that personally. I'm not having a go at their personality 
the way they look, their height, or any other personal attribute, which is normally what playing the man rather than the ball means. What I always say in these circumstances as well is that it's my podcast and I'll play with it. So uh, even if I was making an ad hominem attack, which I never do actually, at least not consciously, this is a world still just about of free speech, so we can say, say what we like. But the ECB did make a balls of it after the financial crisis, and I worry that they're going to do the same thing again because of all of the reasons that we've just explained. Yeah, in but fact, Chris, they- I, did, I didn't see that comment now, um, but having been at the other end of that podcast with you last week, um, I certainly would have no idea how you could possibly describe that as an ad hominem attack. Uh, you were criticising ECB policy, and indeed... There's many valid reasons why the European Central Bank could be criticised since its inception back in 1999. Well, formerly the middle of 1998, but um, that certainly was not... The other ad hominem attack that I was accused of was having to go at Boris. Uh, well, now, I was just going to say, you could certainly stand up, put the hands up and say you're guilty of that. Uh, you really well, don't... Well, no, actually. You, you, no, you... no. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Now, now in fairness, all I have ever criticised is everything that he ever says and everything that he ever does. I've, I've never had a clown. go at... I've called him a clown, Chris, so... I've, I've never had a go at any personal attributes of Johnson. It's just too easy to avoid all that. You just simply examine what he does and examine what he says and just proceed accordingly. The fact that I might do it in a laughing way, the might, fact that I might do it in a slightly hysterical way, is neither here nor there. I'm having a go at what the man says and what he does. And that's the, the quintessential definition of not playing the man, but playing the ball. That said, I just want to read out to you, talking of Johnson, the headline on Twitter today, which I just love and adore because I wish I'd written it myself. is written by a guy called Ian Dunt, who is one of my favourite political commentators in the UK. That's because we seem to agree with each other a lot. He's in, clearly in my social bubble anyway. I'm Con- confirmation bias, Chris, yeah. Absolutely. Motivated reasoning, all of those sorts of things. But the headline on a piece that he's written today, I just break out and smile. And I quote Jim, the Tories are losing and they're losing badly. What joy it is to be alive. It's great stuff. You, anybody should read or follow Ian Dunt on Twitter. He's often on the telly as well. Speaking of Boris, uh, he's had another bad 24 hours uh, the Lib Dems turned around a 24,000 seat major- vote majority in Tiverton and Honiton and Labour have reclaimed Wakefield. Um, the party chairman of the Tory party, Oliver Dowden, resigned today and um, I thought it was really interesting. He said in his resi- letter of resignation that somebody has to take responsibility for recent very poor election results. Boris sort of agreed with him that somebody had to take responsibility and uh, he sort of congratulated him on doing it. Uh, you, you, you just couldn't make it up. So how do you see the situation now? Dowden is an example of countless thousands, actually, of anybody, both at a pers- in a personal way, people who with whom Boris has had all kinds of relationships with, I'm thinking of wives and girlfriends especially, but also his political colleagues and and supposed friends. Dowden, up until last night, was one of Johnson's biggest cheerleaders. Dowden suspended ethics, I think, or most of them, to to become a cheerleading Boris Johnson supporter. And when he was culture secretary, Dowden, he does what the current culture secretary does in the UK. He waged culture war, all the nonsense that the Tories are up to. 
So it, it is ironic that he's jumped ship. I'm not surprised because Downing Street, prior to these two by-elections, were heavily briefing against Dowden and setting him up to be the fall guy. In, in other words, trying to deflect from Johnson. I think he jumped before he was going to be pushed. But Johnson's not going to go anywhere. He is situated right now in Kigali, in Rwanda, attending a Commonwealth conference there. He says it's all because of the cost of living crisis, the thing that we talk about a lot, that we've done so already today. Inflation is the reason why people don't like him. And it's, you know, it's a point of view. It happens to be complete rubbish. All of the evidence from surveys, opinion polls and focus groups, of which there are countless thousands in the UK these days, say that people who no longer vote for Johnson, but who once did, do so because of him, not because of the cost of living crisis, not because of any other policy-based reason, but because of the man. And if you like, it's those voters are making ad hominem attacks rather than me. He is flying in the face of facts. He's... He's a fact-free, policy-free zone, um, but he's not going anywhere. I do think, like a Rory Stewart, an ex-Tory party politician, I agree with his words, which, is, which he has uttered many times, that Boris Johnson is a terrible human being and a worse politician. That is ad hominem, I think, or at least the first part of that is. It's, it's positively febrile in Westminster right now. Speculation is, is a rife about who's going to replace Johnson. Can they even replace him under the rules of the Conservative Party? It's just, it's just a circus. You, you, you use the word clown. I describe the whole situation there as a complete circus because it, it requires somebody in the cabinet like Rishi Sunak and or Michael Gove to now say enough is enough and I'm resigning. So I think that the only thing that could cause Johnson's pretty soon departure would be that kind of high-level resignation. But even that might not work because under the rules, as they're currently constituted, Johnson is safe for another uh, 11 and a half months. Uh, but of course, those rules could be changed. But there's no suggestion at the moment that they are going to be. It's a farce. It's a long running farce with no obvious end, Jim. I mean, you probably look at it and laugh. I look at it because I'm living in the middle of it with complete horror. Yeah, Chris, I just want to bring you back to Ian Dunst's comments about the demise of the Tory party and how much joy he's taken from it. Um, Pre-Boris, or at least the, the pre-the last couple of years of Boris, um, and, and actually perhaps pre-Brexit in 2016, if the two of us lived together in the UK, I would certainly, uh, I think, be a Tory voter. Uh, what would you be? Me? Yeah. God, no. I, I've never voted Tory in my life. Right. Um, and okay. never will. And that's probably, you know, linked to history and family history. I've got a grandfather in particular who would turn in his grave if he thought that um, I would be capable of voting for Tory. Whenever I have voted in the UK, which, of course, because I lived in Ireland for a long time, I didn't do very often, but I have voted in the UK. Um, I would always have naturally been a Labour voter. And quite frankly, I still am. Right. And even during the Corbyn days. Well, luckily, I didn't have to make that decision because but I wasn't on the But if you had to, Chris, come on. I would have voted Lib Dem. Okay, okay. I would never have been a Cor I could never have been a Corbyn supporter, never was a Corbyn supporter, was never part of that cabal. No. Okay, that, that gives me some solace. Jim, shall we wrap it there? <laughs> oh, okay, Chris. Listen, um, have a great weekend and uh, talk to you next week. Cheers, buddy. Bye.
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.